You guys have all heard the saying, you are what you eat, right? You guys know where that saying first came from? I don't know, you all heard it, but where does it come from? That's tricky. Weight Watchers. <laughs> that would be a logical place for it to come from. But the first person to actually use that phrase, as, as far as my research showed, was a French lawyer named Savarine. Who said, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you what you are. Of course, he said that in French. And probably with a lot more diphthongs. And... French is an okay language, but it's just... The spelling is crazy. And when French words come in English. Anyway. So the phrase, you are what you eat, and its variations were used by many people. But it was made popular by Victor, uh, Victor Lindar from the 1930s and 1950s here in the U.S., uh, he used that phrase, you are what you eat, a lot in his radio broadcasts. And the phrase essentially means that our diets have an impact on our health. And we, we get that, right? Like what we eat impacts how we live and, and what our bodies look like and how well we function. It's a simple enough idea. However, this phrase takes on a really drastic form when we observe the heaviest people who have ever lived. Do you guys know the heaviest person who ever lived? might be some interesting trivia that you guys have off the top of your head. Okay, well, if you're ever, <laughs> if you're ever in a trivia contest, the heaviest guy who ever lived was John Brower Minock. This is a picture of him right here. Do you guys have any guess on how much John weighed? 900. Good guess. 1,200. Good guess. Anybody else? 1400. Yeah, stout boy. Between, he lived between 1941 and 1983. You can tell that his lifespan wasn't very long. He did have a rare disorder that made him retain a, a, a large amount of fluid, so a lot of his body weight was fluid, but not all of it. He was, he was a very large man. And another one of the heaviest people who has ever lived was Walter Hudson. Here's a picture of Walter Hudson. If you notice here, 562, that's not in pounds, that's in kilometers, or not kilometers, kilograms. Isn't that 562 kilometers long? 562 kilograms. Anybody good at math? 1,239 pounds. Incredibly, this is Walter's description of his daily diet, Okay. Hopefully this doesn't gross you out. But he ate two boxes of sausage. I'm not sure what a box is. But he ate two boxes of sausage, one pound of bacon, 12 eggs, and a loaf of bread for breakfast. He ate four hamburgers, four double cheeseburgers, five large portions of fries for lunch, three large ham steaks or two chickens, (laughs) four baked potatoes, four sweet potatoes, four heads of broccoli, and most of a large Coke for dinner. Oh, sorry. Most of a large cake for dinner. The broccoli. <laughs> yeah, it's the broccoli. <laughs> he did it. And then he also, throughout the day, ate additional snacks. He drank, on average, 1.9 gallons or 7 liters of pop every single day. So, obviously, this is, like, an outrageous amount of food, and we, we can't even comprehend. Like, that's like a potluck here. Like, we can't even really comprehend what it would be like for us to be able to eat that much food in one day and weigh 1,200 pounds. Like, that's, that's a good size of a cow, you know? Like, that's a, that's a lot of person. 
And it's obvious that food mastered these individuals. And they became the reflection of what they consumed, right? They, they are what they ate. And we have to think that we're in control of our lives. We're aware of what we're doing and what we're taking in and how it influences us and how it changes our lives. But sometimes we don't. In this case, it's obvious, but sometimes we don't. The phrase, you are what you eat, can be modified into all kinds of variations. That principle applies everywhere. You are the sum of the people you spend the most time with. You learn what you spend time studying. You reap what you sow. I mean, the list goes on and on. You can apply this in so many different areas. And we have this working idea that what we pour into our lives has a major impact on who we become and what we do, right? Everybody in agreement with that? So in most cases, these input-output systems have a crucial impact on what we do. And we need to give them close attention because we need to monitor who we are and how we act. We need to give extra special close attention to what we worship. Because the Bible gives us some serious warnings When it comes to our worship. In other words, it gives us serious warnings on to what we give our time and our resources and our heart. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. What does the Bible say about the topic of worship and how that changes who we are? So if you would, go ahead and please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44. I know this is a good chunk of verses here, so don't get mad at me. But God says some really important things in a very clear way in these verses. God is talking to Israel, reminding them of who he is and who these other so-called gods are. And one thing that God makes extremely clear is that in the Old Testament and New Testament... That he is the only true God, and there are no other gods. There's no exceptions. There's no one besides him. So let's see what God has to say, starting in verse 9. Those who fashion a graven image or an idol are all all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they may be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them uh, gather together so that they can be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working working it with a strong arm. He also gets hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself. He takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. 
Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts or roasts and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I've seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god. His graven image, he falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over his eyes, so they cannot see in their hearts, so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, and have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver him safe, nor say, deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? God says some pretty pointed and convicting things here. He says that people who worship idols will be put to shame and that the things they value are worthless. God then goes on to make this almost funny observation about the craftsman who makes idols. God points out that the craftsman takes a portion of a tree to burn and use it as a tool. And then he takes the same tree, another portion of that same tree, and makes it into an idol. For this, from the same material, he makes a fire and he makes a god. And God says that craftsman bows down to a block of wood. When it's said that way, it seems kind of silly, right? <laughs> you see, the problem here isn't the craftsman intellect. It's not like the craftsman is, is less intelligent than everybody else. It's the craftsman's heart. He is deceived. He is misled. He is blind. He is so blind, in fact, that he can't even see that what he is holding in his hand is a lie. So now when we're reading this, and we look at this craftsman, we're like, yeah, this guy doesn't know what's going on. We, we can be judges, right? We can, we can look down at him and say, he's foolish. I can't believe someone would be dull enough to worship a block of wood. Who would think that a God made by a person could do anything to help them? I can't believe someone would be dense enough to worship a tree. But I think the whole reason God made this point is to warn us from falling into the same trap. Why else would he say it if it was so obvious and so beyond us? We can be the foolish craftsman that is holding a lie right in our hands and doesn't see what situation we're in. We can be holding a false idol and think that it's really our God. And remember, God, isn't, God is talking to the Israelites here. He isn't talking to some pagans who don't know any better. He's talking to his own people, the ones that have been learning for generations who he is, the ones that were led through the desert by his power. He's talking to his people, and he's warning them not to be like this man who worships a fake, created God. And God knows the truth of idol worship, and that's something we need to hear. He inspired David to write the psalm. Psalm 135 says this. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but cannot 
see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Do you see what's being said here? God said it way before the French lawyer. You are what you worship. You are what you eat. And what we decide is the most important things in our lives are what we become. If we worship mute, blind, deaf, and dead idols, we ourselves will become spiritually mute and blind, deaf, and dead. Listen to the warning that God is giving us through the psalmist. The psalmist is begging us to pay attention to what we are worshiping. And as we read in Justice in Isaiah 44, sometimes we don't know what that is. We can miss it. It can be right in our hands. We're convinced that we're in the right when actually we're in the wrong. Now, this is where the topic moves to the next level for us today because it would be pretty obvious that carrying around a carved piece of wood and calling it a god is a bad idea, right? To us today, hope, hopefully, we, we think that is true. If you don't, use flash. Don't worship carved wooden images. But in the United States, Western culture, idol worship in that way is not really popular. All right? It's kind of phased out. There are places that it does happen in the world. It does happen here in the U.S. as well. But it's very, very unusual. But concealed idols are much more prevalent. And they rule over us without us even realizing it. Much like the craftsman in Isaiah, who is blind to his own reality. And what Paul says here in the book of Romans, I have it up here for us. It's a section from Romans chapter 1. Paul is telling the people who are sinful. He's talking to the entire world, essentially, those who have a misunderstanding about who God is. He's talking to these people, and he's telling them what they're like and what it's like to be sinful. So he says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being in birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. You see what Paul is doing here, he's talking about idolatry. He's talking about what we worship. Everything that we worship as a God that isn't God. And he says, it's not just a carved image. It's everything that's created. Anything that's created that you worship instead of the creator is wrong. That's idolatry. And interestingly enough, right after he says this, Paul goes on to list a bunch of different sins in reference to worshiping the created instead of the creator. He lists things like sexual immorality and greed and envy, murder, strife, lying, gossiping, arrogance, boastfulness, disobedience to parents, being unloving, among other things. And Paul says that all sin at its core is idolatry. 
And when we worship things that aren't God, we get corrupted by them. We turn into these lifeless, evil things that we worship. But there is hope. (laughs) This has kind of been sad and depressing. But there is hope because even though there are a multitude of evil things that we can worship, there are good things that we can worship, particularly God. Look at what Romans 8 says. This is Paul, later on in his book, talking to the Romans. He's trying to teach them about what it means to worship and be a Christian. He says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, to who worship him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. For those who love God, things will work out in a better way than those who worship idols, because they will be transformed into the image of Christ instead of being transformed in the image of their idol. So instead of being mute and deaf and dead like the idols of this world, as Psalm says, that's what we'll become if we worship God and love him. He transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus, who is perfect, the perfect example of who God is, the perfect example of someone who followed God with his whole heart. And we look at Jesus, and we see that he was filled with peace and love, patience, kindness. He was merciful, not to mention he's alive forever. He has eternal life. And when we worship God, we are transformed in a positive way into that image. We are moved towards Christ. So here are some important things for us to take with us this week. Our idols can be difficult to identify. Remember the craftsman who held the idol literally in his own hand. God says, the guy is holding the block of wood in his hand, calling it a guy. He doesn't even realize that he's lying to himself. If it's that obvious, maybe we are worshiping some idols too. We can be just like that, especially considering Paul's definition of idolatry, which is anything that's created. Be it our family, our money, our intellect, popularity, our jobs, or anything else, it's important for us to do some self-reflection and to see what we are worshiping. Now, I think we've talked about this before, maybe even recently, but... That's a good reminder. Look at what you're spending your time on. Look at what you're spending your money on. And at the end of that search, you might find an idol. Right? You might find something at the end of that search you didn't want to find. And if you're struggling with a certain sin over and over and over again, it may be because you're placing something as a priority in your life that you shouldn't be. You may be having an idol in your hands and you might not even know it. And sometimes we have to give those things up in pursuit of God. Now, I want to qualify the statement I just made. It is important, don't hear me wrong, it is important for us to spend time working hard, investing in our families. It's not bad to have hobbies and interests. It's not bad. Those things aren't bad, but when we give those things honor in our lives, when we worship them, when we give them more time and love than God, they become idols. And those things will eat us alive 
and we'd be transformed into those things. That leads us to the next second point we really need to take with us. You become what you worship. Let that sink in. If you let these fake gods rule over you, you'll become like them. If you worship money, you'll only be focused on profiting. Profiting your own wealth regardless of how it affects other people. You'll be willing to sacrifice anything for a dollar. If you worship yourself or your self-image, you're going to become filled with pride, which leads to selfishness, a lack of empathy. You isolate yourself from other people, among a lot of other terrible practices. We could just keep making a list of how our idols in our lives will affect what we do and how we think and what we say. But instead of just talking about all the bad idols, may I suggest to you that you just worship the living God and his son Jesus. Because if you do, you're going to become like them. Look at God's characteristics. It says in Exodus that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love for thousands, forgiving wickedness, and he's also just. Those are the same things that we see in Jesus during his ministry. Those are the things that will start to manifest in our lives if we worship the living God instead of the idols of this world. A good indicator to help us see if we are worshiping God or an idol is to look at what we do, what we think, and what we say. If we are expressing the fruits of the Spirit, so if your life is filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, you're probably worshiping the right God. But if you find yourself angry and selfish and impatient and greedy or just indifferent about what's going on in the world, you may have an idol in your heart somewhere. It may not take all your time. It may not be intentional, but it may be there nonetheless. So the idea we're talking about today is simple. Right? It's almost painfully obvious. Just like the idea of you are what you eat. We all understand that our diets affect our lives in big ways. The same is true for the things that we love, that we put our time and money and resources into. You are what you worship. It's a simple idea. The good news is, though, now you know. You have a choice to make. Many people in the world don't even know there is a choice. Or even worse yet, they're raised in this world and influenced by culture to think that choosing a god like money or popularity is a good idea. But we know the truth. Everyone worships a god. And now you have a choice. Choose between the living god who brings life and peace and love, or choose between the false idols that bring division and hatred and death. To me, it seems like a good choice. That being said, it's sometimes difficult for us to follow through on our good choices, right? Even though we can see a good decision in front of us, sometimes it's hard to make those. And sometimes the hard decisions are easier to make or more tempting to make. That's why we all don't have perfect exercise and diet routines, right? Just because we know that following God is good for us doesn't mean that it's going to be easy for us to execute that decision, to execute on that plan. Following the other idols of this world may be more appealing or easier at times, but we have to make an effort, a conscious effort, through prayer and through community and through our personal devotion to follow God. Don't miss the lie that God pointed out to you this morning. 
The idols of this world will leave you high and dry. They'll leave you empty. They'll leave you dead. He is begging us to worship him so that we can have eternal life, so that we can be like his son and live a life of purpose and love and peace. God is the only thing worth worshiping. Let's pray. God, I just pray that you enlighten us, that you show us where these idols might be hiding in our lives, that you illuminate them so that we can get rid of them. Allow our priority and love to only go to you always so that we can move closer and closer to the image of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.